So I, I had a friend who was a teacher in Juvenile Hall, not the safest of jobs, uh, of course, but uh, especially with the older kids in there. And he was actually a high school teacher in Juvie. And uh, one of the policies that they have in Juvenile Hall, if you're not aware, is that they would have this practice for the safety of the guards and everybody else in Juvie. They have this practice of putting their hands behind their back as they would walk so you know you couldn't you know be hiding anything they could they could know where your hands are at because if your hands are free you can do all sorts of terrible things so they would have as a practice at juvenile hall their hands behind their backs and what my my friend observed is that whenever they walk in you know single file line they all have their hands behind their backs and all this kind of thing but what my friend observed is that he would watch them as they were leaving juvenile hall these kids after you know they were in there for a year or two years or three years or whatever and he would observe as they were walking away, they still had their hands behind their backs, you know, as if they were still in juvie. So the question I ask is, how do you, how do you break that habit? It's just not simply by, he'll stop telling them, stop doing that, just stop it. Because as we all know, some habits, they do die pretty hard. And so the way, though, that you tell someone to hey, stop putting your hands behind your back if they've been used to doing it is, look at appeal to the past. You're no longer in prison. You are free. You don't have to put your hands behind your back. It's appealing to a past redemptive event of being freed or set free from bondage or prison to let these, these kids know, hey, you don't need to put your hands behind your back anymore. And so that's how people change. It's not by repetitive brute force kind of demands threatening them as it were but by appealing to an event in the past like being re released from juvenile hall or prison reminding them who they are in light of that that they are free they don't have to act like a prisoner anymore and it's important for us as people to, to look back to past events that bring us hope and purpose uh, some, you know looking back to why you started you know a journey you're on right now in life Looking back to why you started it, what, what brought you to that, to that journey, and it, it gives you motivation to keep on going. I love the way how the Protestant reformer Martin Luther put it in his famous commentary in Romans and talking about salvation by grace and faith alone and how that relates to progress in the Christian life. He says, to progress is always to begin, always to begin again. So sometimes in order to keep us from doing, in order for, to, to keep us doing what we're doing in our life, to keep on doing all the, the difficult things, the day in and day out tasks in our life, I mean, it, life can be exhausting, right? And you just get so worn down with all of these tasks and whether it's a mission or a job or whatever it is, parenting, and you have to remind yourself because you get so tired, you get so burned out sometimes, you have to remind yourself, this is what I do. This is why I do what I do. This is why I do it. Because what happens is, yeah, it just gets tough. It gets exhausting. And sometimes you can, by just same old tasks or putting up with the same old stuff, you can get very easily demotivated and demoralized and kind of depressed. And uh, we, we've all experienced this. I've experienced this. Um, and uh, something that, that pastors experience, people don't know pastors go through this unless you're a pastor, which I gather none of you are. Um, so, um, but I could be wrong about that. You know, I never know who's visiting. Um, 
So yeah, it's something that pastors go through is what's called the Monday blues, and you can read about this on the in. Um, you can read about this on the internet. You can just ask any old pastor about this, and it's actually it makes sense biologically because on Sundays you have such an intense day of preaching, and you have this spiritual high of preaching in front of people, and you get all you know wild up and intense while you're preaching God's word, and then what they say, what goes up must come. Down And so Monday is a day where all pastors, you know, we all, we all call each other. Oh, man, how was your numbers that day? How are people doing? Or anybody getting saved? Are you baptizing people? You know, what's going on? Oh, man, it was a hard Sunday. People call, my friends call me. Of course, I always tell them positive things, right, to keep up appearances, even on my nose. <laughs> It was a joke. Uh, but, you know, and so, yeah, you know, pastors, we call each other on Monday and, you know, you got to kind of encourage each other. And, you know, one of the things that, that the pastors do is, is we, we look back to why are we doing this? We're doing this because, we, you know, I might speaking for myself. I got saved. You know, and I, I just experienced the love and grace of Jesus. And I want others, others to experience that joy of Christ and to love his word. And so I have to go back to the beginning. And my Mondays are not so bad. It also helps to have a wonderful wife and kids that encourage you as well. And so Mondays are not so bad for me because you, I want to go back to the beginning. Why do I do what I do? And it's because Jesus saved me. I want others to know about that salvation. I want others to know about that grace. And that gets me all excited. And I'm sure for the mothers out there, you're raising kids. That is constant. It is exhausting taking care of kids every single day. And, you know, changing diapers, cleaning up vomit at 3 a.m. You kind of have to remind yourself, okay, you know, um, I, I'm doing this to be a Christian mother, to serve Christ. And I am having an eternal impact on these kids, even though as I change the next diaper, it may not feel like it. So going back to the beginning, reminding yourself of this mission. And so when we get tired, we get beat down, we've got to go back to the beginning and remember why we're here. Review what God has done for you and blessed you in your purpose. And so what Paul does here in Romans 6 is he does exactly that for us. He goes back to the beginning. Going back to the work of Jesus Christ and going back to the gospel message, looking backwards for Paul in Romans 6 is a means of godly living, as a means of following Jesus as a disciple better. And so Paul's point is we do change. People do change. They do grow, especially if they know Christ. They grow spiritually. And the way they grow spiritually, the means by which God uses that is looking back. Looking back to what Jesus did. So let's see this in our verse-by-verse -verse study here of Romans 6-5. Paul says here, For if, I have, if, if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. And so he's saying, yeah, we're united to Jesus through his death and resurrection. We receive the benefits of his death and resurrection. We receive all of those, all of those amazing things. And it, but notice what's he doing here? He's not pointing forward. He's pointing back to what Jesus did. Look what you're united to. His death, his resurrection, all past events here. In verse 6, he does something similar. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's what sin did. He died. He destroyed the old order of sin and death on the cross so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
So our old self under Adam, you remember Romans 5, Adam and Christ, we're no longer under Adam, but through faith in Jesus, we're under Jesus Christ. And so that, you know, Jesus by his death wipes out that old order of Adam and we are engrafted into Jesus, into that covenant, the new covenant. And so again, he's looking back to that past event. Look what Jesus did. Now, Paul says some words here that might make you uncomfortable if you really, really think about it, or if you don't, either way. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. People have read that and go, like, wait a minute, does that mean I don't sin anymore? Does that mean I don't struggle anymore? Is this, and so what he's talking about here is just referring to that transfer from Adam that was death and struggle with sin and trouble to life and eternity in Jesus Christ and the life that brings destroying that old order and going to a new order in Jesus Christ. And we make that switch. And so what happens when we make the switch is Paul will talk about this more in Romans 8, but there's it's this transformation. It says those who are in the flesh in Romans chapter 8 cannot please God. But of course, when you become a Christian, it says that those who are in the spirit, you can please God. You have the ability. You're not like controlled by your, you're not completely controlled by your sinful desires anymore. You can't have the excuse, as some church ladies would say, the devil made me do it. No, we, we are able to, to, to please God in the spirit. And so there's, there's a transformation from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Doesn't mean perfection, because as we all know, we sin every 10 minutes just to evaluate your thought life. We all know this. And so the struggle that people have is reading through Romans 6. And I've heard many people express this struggle to me personally as you read Romans 6, 6 and 6 through 7, which we'll read next. And they get this understanding. Well, this must mean perfection. This must mean, as a Christian, I will arrive to a point of sinless perfectionism. I'll read it here. Verse 7. For the one who has died has been set for, free from sin. Now, if one of you guys came up to me after you said, you know what, Nate? I have been set free from sin without any context. And I'd say, Whoa, is this person saying they're perfect? Come on. You know, that's what we first hear. If someone just, just imagine someone saying that to you, like, no, you're not set free from sin. You still sin. And so that's like a natural meaning that we would take from that expression. But we know that's not what Paul means. We know that specifically because in Romans 7, he describes his struggle with sin. In 1 John 1, it says, if you say you have no sin in your life right now, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And that Paul, at the very end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is what he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the chief of sinners. So in, it's in Greek. In Greek, it's in present tense. That's what the original New Testament was written in, was Koine Greek. Um, and so it's in the present tense. He's saying, right now, at the end of my life, as an old man, I'm the worst guy I know. I'm the chief of sinners. So when Paul says here, being set free from sin, it's impossible that he means you've arrived at a point of sinless perfectionism. We still do sin. But see, the thing is, is that in Jesus, there's a positional difference. There is a legal, positional, foundational difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. And that old power of sin being destroyed in Adam and new life in Christ. And so, yeah, this, this positional difference, this, the fact that we're declared righteous, the fact that we're de declared not guilty and righteous by the judge of the universe, that's a real positional legal difference. And that's what he's talking about here. So when he says set free from sin, he's speaking in terms of you are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. But you see, 
What he's drawing at here is that that, that positional difference here, that, legal, that, that, that brings real and fundamental transformation and growth to your life as a Christian. This is how the, one of the greatest New Testament scholars, Douglas Moo, puts it in his commentary in Romans. Paul's language threat is forensic, legal. Like, not guilty like a judge. Positional. By God's act, we have been placed in a new position. So, old position, new position. This position is real for what exists in God's sight is surely ultimately real. It carries definite consequences to day-to-day -day living. But it's a status or a power structure. That sin that he died to on the cross, he's destroying the, the old order, the old power structure. That Paul is talking about here. And so yeah, that power structure has been destroyed. We are declared righteous. We are set free from sin in Christ. Paul, but what's interesting here is Paul is again, keep on repeating this, and it's important to, to say this, he is again appealing to what? The past. He's looking back to what Jesus did over and over again. Paul doesn't say, all right, okay, you know, Nate, enough of this grace stuff. Enough of this gospel stuff. He's not saying that. You know, that's only something that unbelievers need to hear. People say that in the church. No, this is what we as Christians need to hear because he's going back to it over and over again. You don't move in the Christian life from like, okay, I'm going to focus on Jesus, then I'm going to focus on myself and, the, and my own personal holiness. We never move beyond Jesus. We, we grow deeper and deeper into our relationship with Christ and His grace. We don't move beyond the gospel. We move deeper and deeper into the gospel. And we need to be reminded every day that we are set free from sin. We are declared righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus. And transformation, real change in a person's life, comes from remembering you are forgiven and that you are righteous in the sight of God. Remembering those truths helps you grow. But see, what the Bible says, the flip side, if you forget those truths, if you, if you lose sight of those truths or anything like that, that helps you, or that doesn't help you, that's not the right way to say it, that hurts you in the Christian life, that doesn't help you grow, that messes things up, that, that does not cultivate virtue, Christian virtue in you. And this is what the Apostle Peter taught in agreement with Paul here in 2 Peter 1, 5-10. It's a big chunk here, but I... I think it's so important, it's worthy to read the entire chunk. It says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind." Haven't forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Having forgotten, forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. So the reason why virtue is not being cultivated in the Christian life, the reason why this happens is people forget that they're redeemed. People forget that they're saved. People forget that their sins are forgiven. That's why he explains why bad things happen, you know, why there's, why there's a sin that occurs is because people are not remembering the gospel, they're forgetting it. They are forgetting that Jesus has forgiven all of our sins. And so the reason why I sin so often, we all sin so often, is we forget Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross and forgiving us all our sins. Just like the person here he's describing in 2 Peter 1. 
And this is why we preach the gospel. We try to. I, I mean, I, I pray that I do every Sunday. Preach the gospel here. This is why we have communion frequently here to remind us of the gospel over and over and over again that it is finished. And so Paul confirms this truth of looking back and reminding ourselves who we are on a deeper level in Romans 6, 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Looking back again, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death will no longer have dominion over him. So that's true of us. We're no longer under, under Adam, that old sin and death. We're under Christ, legally and positionally. For the death he died, he died to sin. Not that he was a sinner, but he destroyed that power structure of sin when he died. Once and for all, it's taken out. It's done with. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in God in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's focusing here on remembering that Christ died here to these sins and that, that death and sin will not have a stronghold on you. We have to remember as believers that we are loved, accepted, cherished, righteous, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. And that knowing that and remembering that changes the way you and I behave. We have to remember who we are. Every time I say that, and it must be like some weird psychological memory tick I must have or something, but every time I think of Remember Who You Are, I think of The Lion King. I, I, growing up, that was one of my favorite Disney movies ever, and I went to Burger King at the time. Uh, they don't have this anymore, Burger King. But they, but, I, it, but they had, I collected every single Lion King pop-up puppet at, 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 I don't, who remembers? Anybody remember that? Is that that's just me? Oh, one person. Okay, I feel a little. Two people. You know, they had these pop ups, and you know, I had collected Lion King cards, and I had like oh, I was all into it, and I would play the Super Nintendo game of Lion King or Simba, and it, so I loved. I watched it over and over again, as I do most movies, as you all know. And so, you know, it, it the movie has a great connection. It's because you remember Mufasa saying, Simba, remember who you are, you know, as a, I don't know, lion ghost or something, right? You know, and, and that was the impetus for him changing. And I hope I'm not spoiling the movie for anybody on uh, Lion King. But, you know, Simba, right? He accidentally kills his dad. He feels guilty. He was all set up by Scar anyway. Feels like he's really bad. So he forgets about his purpose and everything as the king of the sun and that he's the next in line to be the king. So his evil uncle takes over. But he, in the process, meets these two deadbeat, deadbeat losers, Timon and Pumbaa, right? I mean, they're losers. So let me be clear about that. I know you may like Hakuna Matata, but I mean, they're, they're bad influence friends. So he says, Hakuna Matata, just forget about all your responsibility. Yeah. So like I said, not good influences. I mean, they turn around at the end of the movie, but you know how it goes. And so Simba, you know, he forgets about being the king, you know? And so he's with his loser, deadbeat friends all day long that tell him not to remember anything. And they're gassing, you know, playing dumb games, eating junk food, you know, these, these two, you know, deadbeat friends of him. And then, you know, it takes a woman, of course, and the, the, the ghost of uh, his dad to say, Simba, remember who you are. You're the king, Simba. You know, and then he's like, all right, well, I got to so take out my uncle and, you know, get back into this whole king business kind of thing. And so he starts acting like a king and he takes responsibility and takes out Scar, the bad guy. And again, if, I mean, if you haven't seen Lion King, then, you know, I'm sorry. It's been, what, 30 years? When did it first come out? It's like 25 years, right? 25, 30 years? 
at least. There we go. Uh, so, yeah, and so we like that are like Simba. We, we, we forget who we are. And so, you know, as the old expression goes, so a man thinketh, so he is. How you think about yourself. It matters how you think because it determines how you will act. So that means every time you are sinning, in a sense what Paul is saying here, what you are having is an identity crisis. And so, because we must consider ourselves righteous here. That's what it's saying. That's what Paul is reminding us of here in Romans 6, 11. And so we look back to what Jesus did, look back to the fact that we are adopted sons and daughter of God and we can't continue to live in this sin. Another thing that Paul says here is we have to consider ourselves dead to sin. I mean, think about that for a second. You know, a good analogy I can think of, you know, when, I don't know, someone in a family does something wrong, whether it's a son or a daughter or a dad, and the family member will say, you're, you're dead to me. You guys ever hear someone, it's probably movies all around, you're dead to me, but they're not really actually dead, but they're treating them as if they were dead. And this reminds me of, uh, I'm a big Godfather connoisseur, but of uh, Michael Corleone talking to Fredo in The Godfather, right, who betrays his whole family and everything. And we have to treat sin like we treat Fredo here, like Michael treats Fredo. And I love the scene, The Godfather, because Michael's like so calm and like, like composed as he's telling his brother to get out of his life, basically. I mean, like just like a, like a stone-cold-faced mobster, he says, Fredo, he's very, very calm. You're nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you or what you do. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance so I won't be there. You know, it's just like cold mobster here. And we have to treat, not as a cold mobster, we have to be more, be probably more energy than Michael Corleone. He's, you know, Al Pacino was very calm in those early roles, as we all know now. He got older, he's every role, he's screaming, you know. Uh, but in that older role, he was very calm. We have, we have to be like, no, sin. We have to be, you know, more excited. We got to tell sin. We got to be more passionate. Say, no, sin, you are dead to me. You're nothing to me at all. And so this is, this is you know, tough because any honest person's going to be like, okay, wait a second here, Nate. Um, how does this jive with the fact that I still do sin every 10 minutes? How does this work out? And it, it, people run into a whole lot of mistakes in their thinking because what people think is they say, okay, I'm sinning or I'm struggling in this one particular area. And so that means that because of this, uh, I can't really be dead to sin. And some people, what they start doing, doing the opposite of saying sin, you're dead to me, they start identifying themselves with their sin, even defining themselves by that particular sin or the sin they're struggling with. And so some people will call themselves by their sins. And I've heard people say this before, oh, you know, I'm an alcoholic Christian. People will just say, I'm an alcoholic. And they'll repeat that over and over again and take on that label onto themselves. A little bit different than saying sin's dead to you, isn't it? When you say, call yourself an alcoholic over and over again. I've heard some people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm a foul mouth Christian or I'm a bad Christian. I'm the really bad one, you know? Uh, so they're using their sin as def de definitional for who they are. Putting a title on themselves like that. And yeah, we as Christians, we have to be honest. We do struggle with sin. Everybody does. And we, we have days where we do feel like the worst of sinners, as Paul did. But the difference is we're not to define ourselves in that old order of Adam. Identifying ourselves with that sin. So for instance, I have confessed to all of you that if you've been here for any more than three weeks, you know I have a speeding problem. I struggle speeding sometimes, you know. I'm not going to call myself a speeding Christian. Or a law-breaking Christian. I'm going to consider myself dead to that sin of being impatient with wonderful drivers on the roads of Draper here. 
And I'm going to identify with Jesus most, not my bad habits on the road. Just so you guys know, when you guys, you know, cut me off, when I cut you off in traffic, you're like, oh, there's my pastor, you know, right there. So you, at least you know, like, you know, you won't be shocked when you see me like, oh, man, didn't know Pastor Nate Drew like that. You're like, oh, there he is. I know what he's up to. That's why I tell you all this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so... But more than my gender, more than my race, more than my accomplishments and positions in life, more than anything else, I belong to Jesus Christ. He defines me. I'm a Christian. That is central to who I am. Any political thing or whatever it is, you view yourself first and foremost. We are Christians. I love the way that Paul puts it in Galatians 3, 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. It's our, our, our definition of ourselves as a Christian and being, a, being united with Christ, being righteous in Christ, is so central that he's like, just annihilate everything else. It's a figure of speech. Obviously, there are still Jews and Greeks and women and men. I mean, obviously. But it's so central to who... He is and so central to the earliest Christians. And that's because I am a Christian. Because Jesus loved me and he gave his life for me. So I identify under his banner as a Christian. It is finished. I love the way that Brennan Manning puts it. He says, my deepest awareness, not like a side thing, but it's the deepest awareness about himself is that he is deeply loved by Jesus Christ. That is central to who you are and that you do not deserve it. And so that's why Paul says we are not to identify with any particular sin as a Christian. We should recognize that we do sin. We don't identify with it. And he says even farther in Ephesians 5, 2-3, we are not even to name ourselves or put a name of sin amongst us as the followers of Jesus. Ephesians 5, 2-3, and to walk in love, in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. You don't even name it among you, as is proper among the saints, because we are holy in Christ. And so we're not to name ourselves as an alcoholic or a drug addict, or whatever you're struggling with. We can admit we struggle with those things, but those things don't define us. Jesus does ultimately. And we are to view ourselves in light of that. Even, even people who, you know, who would say, you know, well, you know, uh, I'm a really good, good, good Christian. I'm an amazing Christian. You know, or that, you know, your obedience doesn't define you, nor does your disobedience define you. It's Jesus, which is penultimate in defining who you are and how you view yourself. You are in a sphere of grace in terms of thinking, becoming more and more transformed in the likeness of Christ. I'm going to have this last part here, Romans 6, 12 through 14, our last two verses. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as is presenting here to it sins as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as an instrument of righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So he's saying, hey, that law covenant, covenant of works with Adam, that was under, under us, we were under in the garden when we sinned in Adam. That law covenant is, does not produce obedience. We've gone over this law that you have to strive and work and achieve to be righteous. Be worthy before God. Try to get your worthy amount before God. That's not going to make us good. Being under law makes a person bad. It makes them bad because we've discussed this. You either fake being good or you just give up. 
Right? Those are the two options you have. And so it doesn't produce true change in a person's heart, true discipleship to Jesus Christ. It doesn't do those things. So Paul says, yeah, that that makes you sin more, not less. But what about grace? How does grace really change us? How does grace change people and help us grow? What I've said is people have taught a lot about this in the church and and wrongly, I would say this is a mistake that people have in the church is that, okay, you first hear the gospel and getting saved and you're like, you know, all passionate about Jesus. People get on these like when they first get saved, they're all they're all on fire. They're just all excited about the Lord. And then remember those times, you know, just early on, every song about grace, you're like crying. You're just everything. You're just on this emotional high and you're all on fire and excited. It's like you've had, you know, six cups of coffee, coffee in the basement. And you're just all you're, you're just all triggered. You're all intense about this stuff. Right. And so you're all passionate about Jesus. and You're just you just get saved. But, you know, see somewhere down the line, something happens to you. It's just you start fizzing out a little bit. You start focusing less on the cross and the fact that Jesus has saved you magnificently. And then that cross, it gets switched out with a ladder or a mountain. And you say to yourself, well, I got to keep on climbing this thing to make progress here. And you're tired and you're exhausted. And it's almost like at first when you first get saved, it's amazing. You're like, okay, yeah, okay. Took Jesus saved me by his blood, sweat and tears. But you know what? It's going to take my blood, sweat and tears to keep me in keep me saved. And so you're climbing this mountain of progress and you, you go from this feeling of, oh, at first I really needed Jesus. I was a train wreck. I was a mess. You, pro, you, you kind of progress. And you're like, I don't need Jesus anymore. I'm not as desperate as I used to be. I need a Jesus a lot less than I used to because now I'm, I don't do this anymore. I don't do that. I don't do this anymore. And I, you know, you start believing your own press, you know, like, oh, I don't, I don't cuss around people like I used to. What do you want, a cookie? You know, people always give examples like that. You know, oh, I don't do this as much anymore. Or, you know, I don't, I don't yell all the time. Well, in your mind, you're probably yelling. And so people just, they're no longer acquainted with their just deep sense of desperation. And they think, oh, well, yeah, I don't need Jesus as much. And so this clear switch happens. It happens for me. It happens to you because we're all natural born legalists. We start focusing salvation less on Jesus and more on the life of the Christian. We focus more on what we do than what Jesus has done for us. And so, you know, this whole thing happens where this magical moment of salvation and how God has blessed us so much is just, it's just kind of like we're all pumped about serving God. That goes away. And then the Christian life becomes this day-to-day, exhausting, horrible, brutal experience. And you just want to quit. You're just exhausted. You know, toughing it up. And you, people say, yeah, you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstrap spiritually. Depend less on Jesus. Be more independent and reliant. You got it down. And so, you, you know, it's, it's amazing. In the event of hearing the gospel, you have this great joy and excitement. It just goes away. It fades away. And then there's just replaces this tiresome, exhausting kind of demand, utterly brutal way of progressing. You got to keep on going. And so people are focused on themselves. How's your progress doing? Are you growing? You're stopping this? You're doing this? And so that, that loving feeling goes away and you feel depressed. And I've seen people just spiritually crash and burn here so bad and people do it over and over again in cycles. And, but you see, this view of sanctification that you know, you're all focused on Jesus getting saved and you're thankful for his grace and now you've got to make it more about the life of the Christian rather than the life of the Christ. It's this view that does it because it's this view that gets us so exhausted, so tired. We go, oh, 
I got to get more and more sanctified, got to get more and more holy. And you're so focused on yourself while well, you're working on yourself, you know, self-focused kind of narcissistic thinking rather than being Christ-focused. There's no reason why you should ever say, okay, it's time to take my eyes off the Christ and focus it all on myself. That's not how it goes. But you see, that's what happens. And so people usually, I have a picture, did Brent get it? Of Leonardo DiCaprio? Sounds kind of weird from a pastor. Do you, got, yeah. Do you have my DiCaprio picture up? <laughs> and most people think, okay, yeah, you know, I'm saved and this is what salvation's like. This is sanctification. You got the Titanic and the Reverend there. You know, it's like, it's just a depressing failure pile in a sadness bowl. Look at that's happy, that's sad. And because you got to pull yourself up by the boots, bootstraps and hike in that winter snow. You all know I love snow here. And you think every day, okay, yeah. But you know, that's not how it's supposed to be. I think every day we should more be deeply acquainted with how sinful and messed up we are. And every day we need to be going back, being wrecked afresh every day going back to, you know, I need just as much mercy as I ever did before because I'm aware of sins that I'm not even aware of anymore. <laughs> you know, I stopped doing this, but I found this too. And I'm a mess and I need the mercy of Jesus just as much now as when I first began. And when that happens, you realize how much grace God has given you and how desperate you are and how desperately you need Jesus. And so what happens is you love Jesus more because you're like, oh my goodness, he's forgiven me for all of this. I can't believe this. I used to struggle with this, but now it's this. I didn't even realize what was going on. I mean, there are sins, you know, I, I thought in my 20s, I wasn't even aware of until I was 30, you know? And my wife helps too a lot with that, if I'm being honest. So, good conduit of God's grace, right? God bless mothers. So, yeah, we don't move on to this, like, plane of, okay, we, we first start off with gospel, then we go to law. It's gospel, 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 growing deeper and deeper and deeper into grace, being more aware of my sin and more aware of how much Jesus has forgiven me. We don't move beyond the gospel. We move deeper and deeper into the gospel, have a deeper acquaintance with it. And every day we should be learning on a deeper and more fundamental existential level that we are far more messed up and sinful than we could ever imagine. But we are far more loved and cherished by God in Christ than we could ever dream. And when you realize this on a daily basis, that the sins that haunt you every day, the sins that you have trouble letting go of, the sins that you cannot forget that hold on to you at three o'clock in the morning, God has already forgiven and forgotten them. He has thrown those sins into the sea of forgetfulness as far as the east is from the west. And we realize what a sinful train wreck mess we are. And we realize that God has shown so much grace to us every single day. Not that you're at some higher you know, spiritual plane, but actually that you feel like you're getting weaker. And Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. When you have a good awareness on a daily basis that you are weak and broken and that you need Jesus more desperately than ever before, you get to be like the Titanic Leonardo. Okay? You get to be with showing happiness and joy. Because look what he saves me from. And he's still saving me from this. As Paul says at the end of his life, this is Paul who suffered for the gospel, gave his life for Christianity, for the truth of Jesus. At the end of his life, he's not like, I am the greatest guy I know. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. No, at the end of his life, he says, I am the worst guy I know. 
I am the chief of sinners. It's not like, look at me flex spiritually at the end of my life. He's like, I am a wreck, the chief of sinners at the end of his life. And that's what living under grace looks like, is a deeper acquaintance with desperation and a deeper acquaintance with, a, with a grace and mercy and salvation that Jesus gives us every single day. You can be a Christian for 20 years and 40 years. The older you are, the, realize, the more you realize, I ain't making it. The only hope I have is Jesus. As the hymn writer of Amazing Grace once said, John Newton, at the end of his life, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And as you go on in the Christian life, you never move beyond that deep and simple truth. You become more acquainted with it, that you are the greatest of sinners and Jesus is the greatest of saviors. So to progress in your life, to change is to always go back to the beginning and be more deeply acquainted with the significance of that beginning point, that we have been saved, ransomed, and rescued by Jesus Christ alone in the gospel of grace. Let's pray.